Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. The message today is the second in a series I'm doing. The series is entitled, How God Treats His Children. In the Bible, especially the New Testament, God is referred to as God the Father. When we trust Jesus Christ, we become His children. So very simply, I want to ask and attempt to answer How does God, as a father, treat his children? Now, I said this is the second because I'm deliberately developing this in a logical series, and it's important that you understand the whole series. It would be nice if everybody could hear the first message before they get to the second and so forth. So let me just take a second and recap what I said in the first message. Basically, I said, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, God has blessed you. According to Paul, he's blessed those of us who've trusted his son, Jesus Christ, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. In other words, we have been given all we need to grow to spiritual maturity. Or to use Paul's phrase in the book of Colossians, we are complete in him. Or to say all of that very simply, God wants us to grow. Now he's given us all that we need to grow. That's already a settled issue. But on top of that, we need to respond. And as we do, he keeps blessing us with grace so that we can grow to spiritual maturity. In short, God wants fruit. He wants us to produce spiritual fruit, which is another way of saying he wants us to grow to spiritual maturity. Now, the question I want to ask today is this. Suppose we don't. What happens to those who don't produce fruit? Well, this is actually a debated subject. Uh, There are a large number of Christian theologians and pastors as well as laymen who would say that you've got to produce fruit. If you don't, you were never saved to begin with. They would say, by your fruits you shall know them. Uh, That is based on a passage in Matthew chapter 7, which isn't talking about that at all. It's talking about how you know a false teacher. But there are those who say it's not possible for a genuine Christian to not bear fruit. Now, you can get into a debate of how much fruit and how quick, and I'm not sure I know all the answers to that, but this I do know. The Bible is willing to say that some don't produce fruit. Peter says that very bluntly. In first, I'm sorry, Second Peter, chapter one, he says 
that you ought to add to your faith virtue, to your virtue, knowledge, to your knowledge. And he goes on and lists a whole bunch of virtues. Perseverance, self-control, brotherly kindness, love. And then he says this. After describing that fruit, and he calls it fruit in verse 8, he then says in verse 9, For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The verse is 2 Peter 1, 9, and he clearly says it's possible for a believer to be unfruitful. Matter of fact, he goes on to say that those that are guilty of this are blind. Uh, Now, the Bible talks about unbelievers being blind, but 2 Peter 1 talks about believers being blind. And we know they are believers because he says they forgot they were forgiven. He calls them brethren in that passage. So they're clearly believers, and yet they can be blind. They don't see spiritual truth. He says they're short-sighted. That's really a vivid expression. The idea is they only see what's in front of them. They don't see far off. They're not looking at eternal values. They're only looking at the immediate. And they sacrifice the permanent on the altar of the immediate. And then he says they have forgotten that they were purged from their sins. So I'm simply saying Peter says, that it is possible for a genuine believer, one who has been forgiven of his sins, to not produce a lot of fruit. I'm pausing for that to sink in. Now here's my question for today. How does God the Father treat an unfruitful child? In order to answer that question, I'd like for you to turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. How does God deal with children that do not produce fruit? Well, I think this passage answers that question. Look at John 15 verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bring forth more fruit. All right. Uh, There's obviously an analogy. It's a uh, grapevine. How many of you have a grapevine growing in your yard. Any of you have a grapevine growing in your yard? Yeah, okay. I want you to imagine there's a a branch, uh, and then he says uh, in this verse, um, there is the vine, and then, but what he focuses on, the little branches coming out of the vine. You got that picture in your head? Imagine a vine, and then there are little branches coming out from the vine. Got it? Then he says this, uh, verse 2, every branch in me that bears, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So let's go back to the the vine, and here's a branch, 
and that branch does not bear fruit. Then verse 2 says, but every branch that bears fruit, so there's a second branch on that vine, and it bears grapes. Got it? Now here's our problem today. What does he do with that branch that doesn't have any grapes on it? Verse 2 tells you. What does it say? He takes it away. Now, I said a minute ago, this is a controversial subject, because I would say that many, and surely that's true, perhaps even most evangelicals in America would say that means they were never saved to begin with. Those weren't true Christians, because if you're a true Christian, you bear fruit. Now, let me just point out something real simple. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Where are these branches? And if you're in Christ, you're what? A bona fide, born-again, blood-bought child of God. Got it? So this verse is talking about a genuine believer who isn't producing fruit. Now, how do they handle it who say that can't be? Oh, that gets to be a lot of fun. They, they, they land on that phrase, in me, and they say, well, that just means in the church. Look at the verse. In where? Me. Or they say, this is very common, it means you're in Christendom. But it doesn't say that. It says in me. So, needless to say, I think this is talking about genuine believers. That's not our problem. The problem is, takes away. What does that mean? Well, it normally means, I mean, it normally gets interpreted to mean that you're not a believer, so God takes you away. And later in the passage, we'll get there in a minute, it says he throws them in the fire, and that means they were never saved to begin with, so they go to hell. It's what they say. But they're in him. And earlier in the book, he said that if you've trusted Christ, you will not come into judgment. That's 524, by the way, in the Gospel of John. So this can't mean that a bona fide Christian is lost again. That's not possible, John 524. Well, then what does it mean he takes away? The Greek word translated takes away can be translated remove or it can mean lifted up. And it's translated both ways in the Gospel of John. Now, you know a word has more than one meaning, right? I mean, just that's why we have a dictionary. These are all the ways it's used. You ever looked up the word trunk? What does that word mean? Well, it depends. All definitions depend on the context, not on the dictionary. So there is a trunk in your house, a cedar chest. There's a trunk that's in the back end of your car. An elephant has a trunk. A tree has a trunk. Should we keep going? Have I convinced you a word can have more than one meaning? All right, then how do you know what this word means in this context? Very simple. He's using an illustration. Go back to the illustration. So what does the vine dresser do when he finds a branch that's not producing fruit? 
Well, the first thing he does is he lifts it off the ground. I've read one authority that says that if he leaves it on the ground, it takes root and as a result only produces small grapes. So what they do is they lift the branch off the ground, prop it up so that it can get plenty of sunlight, and that way it is forced to get its strength from the vine, and it'll grow bigger fruit. So I think he is simply saying he lifts it up. By the way, I'm trying not to get too technical here, but let me just tell you... uh, that I can quote authors and authorities and scholars that will argue this, the, the translation of this word uh, both ways. I was real fascinated to find uh, a Reformed Presbyterian pastor, and they usually take it to mean remove, and they weren't genuine believers. James uh, Boyce, uh, who's now with the Lord, he was pastor of Pre- 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, and he, tra- he took it as lifted up. Now, the reason I bring that up is this. It seems to me, with this and in many passages we're going to look at in this series, I can quote reputable commentaries, scholars, who will agree with the interpretation I'm going to give you. Well, then, how do you come up with this other interpretation? And the answer is, you start with the presupposition that a genuine believer produces fruit and an unfruitful believer isn't a true believer. That's what theologians do with it. So if you are a theologian and come to this passage with a preconceived idea, that's what you'll walk away with. But the commentators who aren't trying to be theologians, who are just trying to explain the passage, will come up with what I'm telling you. And that's part of the problem. At any rate, this says he lifts it up. Now, in real simple terms, I think, I mean, that's the illustration, that's the analogy. What's the point? How does he lift up a believer? What does that look like? Well, I'm going to suggest that means he encourages that believer. That one of the things God does is he encourages people to grow. So, the first message in this series is, how does God treat his children? Answer is, he blesses them. With all spiritual blessings to begin with, and added spiritual blessings along the way. Second message, how does God treat his children that don't bear fruit? He encourages them. So if you get that one word down today, you've got basically what I'm trying to say in the progression of how God treats his children. Isn't that what parents do? Uh Or should do? I mean, shouldn't parents encourage their children? I mean, this little critter can't walk. And it crawls. And the first time he or she stands on its feet Everybody gets all excited. Look, he's walking. Look, she's walking. Everybody applauds and gets excited and cheers. What are they doing? They're encouraging the kid to walk. The kid says, oh, you like that. I'll try it again. Plop, falls down on its face, gets up. And you keep encouraging the kid to walk, right? 
Well, that's the way it's supposed to work. Some parents don't do that. They encourage them one-handed and slap them the next. Uh, I talk to people all the time who grew up in a family where the father criticized them to the point of harm. Uh, Well, God encourages us. That's the point. He encourages us to grow. Now, how does he do that? Well, the passage doesn't tell us. What? The passage doesn't tell us. There's nothing in here about what he does to encourage them to grow. However, what he does next is talk about the branch that produces fruit and tells us what's involved in that. So what I'd like to do is talk about the branch that produces fruit because I assume that what God does for that branch is what he does for the branch he encourages. Did that make sense? Did I come... Am I making myself clear? Okay? So let me just divert for a minute and ask, how does God encourage or provide for those who produce fruit? So look at verse 2 again. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bring forth more fruit. You, disciples who are listening to me, are already clean. Where did that come from? Because of the word which I have spoken to you. So in verse 2, he's talking about fruitful branches, and he prunes them. And then he talks directly to the disciples and says, you're already clean. The Greek word that is translated purge in verse 2 is translated clean in verse 3. So in the illustration, in the analogy, it's pruning. The spiritual application is cleaning. He cleans it. But notice how he does that. How does he do that? Through the word which I have spoken to you. So here's what's going on. They've produced a little fruit, and God wants them to produce more fruit, so he then cleanses them, purges them through the word that I've spoken to you. So here now we find out how God encourages us. He does it through his word. That's what verse 3 is saying. In Psalm 119, verse 9, the psalmist says, How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to your word. That's it. Said simply, God encourages us through the word. Now put your finger in John 15. I'm coming back and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to show you how this works. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Did you see that? The scripture is profitable for four things. Look at them. For doctrine, reproof, correction, and instructions. Two of those are positive and two are negative. Doctrine and instruction in righteousness is positive. Uh, Reproof and correction are negative. Or to say the same thing another way, the scripture is designed to teach us what to take out of our life, what I'm calling the negative, 
and what to put in our life, what I'm calling the positive. So as you read the Word, by the way, that is a great way to read the Word. Just pick a book next week and read it, an epistle in the New Testament, read it. And take a little pad, put it down beside the Bible and a pen, and, and as you read it, put a line down the middle of the pad, and on one side put eliminate, and the other side put assimilate, or take out or put in. And just go through the epistle and write down all the things you should take out of your life and all the things you should put in your life. A simple illustration. Let him that stole steal no more. So you put there, stop shoplifting. And the other column, it says, but labor that you may have to give. So don't steal, give. That's that's the way God teaches us. That's the way he instructs us. That's the way he encourages us. He does it through the word. Now, there's no chapter break here, but drop down to chapter 4. Verse 1, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who should judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. So I am told to preach the word so that you can do what I just said back in chapter 3, verse 16. Be instant, be ready, in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and teaching. So if you compare verse 2 with verse 16, you will see that there's a lot of overlap that I am supposed to exhort and rebuke. Those are the negative things. But I'm to teach with patience. So I would say based on this that you need the Word... That's mentioned in John 15. And especially at the beginning, you're going to need somebody to teach you the Word. Now, you can read it on your own. You can get a lot. But God has given teachers to teach us. They have to be taught. They have to study. But the way God encourages believers is that He gives them his word, and he gives them people. That's the way he encourages believers. Now go back to John 15, and look at verse 5. All right, you need to respond. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So let's add to our little list, you need to abide in Christ. Now, notice the illustration. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me. That branch is dependent on the vine to get nourishment to produce fruit. Get the picture? Well, just as that works with the vine and branches, so we are to depend on the Lord to produce fruit. So that's the way this works. I am taught by the Word. I'm taught by a teacher. And I charge out in the world to do what I've been told and fall flat on my face. What's missing? I tried to do it in my own strength. Jesus says, without me, you can do 10% of what I tell you. 20%? Going in the wrong direction. 5%? 
2%. Zero. However, Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. So you go from zero to 100% if you depend on the Lord. Now let's put this together. How does a fruitful branch produce more fruit? The word, people, dependence on the Lord. Well, if that's the way it is with a believer that produces fruit, I assume that's the way it is with a believer who doesn't, and God is trying to encourage them by giving them the word, the instruction in it, people to teach it to them, and in the process teaching them to depend on him. Actually, all this comes down to a relationship. Notice verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I keep my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So as you depend on the Lord, you're able to be obedient. But the key here is as you depend on the Lord. It's all about your relationship to him. So you are a sailboat. Great. But you have to have the wind to push the sail. You are a car, terrific, but you have to have a motor. And it is the Lord who, through the Holy Spirit, is the wind that drives the sail, that drives the boat. And he is, if you'll pardon me for putting it this way, the motor in that he is the power by which we're able to get where we should be going. All right. How are we doing? So far, so good? What am I saying? It's possible to be unfruitful. God wants us to be fruitful. So how does, how does God treat an unfruitful believer? Well, he doesn't tell us directly, but indirectly he tells us because he tells us what he does to a fruitful believer to get him to produce more fruit. He gives us the word. He gives us people. He gives us the knowledge of dependence upon him. So as we trust him, we're able to do that. So let me go back to the passage where he does talk directly to an unfruitful believer. He says in verse 6, But if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch. Did you see that? That's important. Because it says, And is withered, and men gather them, and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, a lot of people come to this verse and say, well, this is unbelievers. And the fire is hell, and if you don't produce fruit, you were never saved, and so you go to hell. That's what they do with the passage. But did you read it? It says in verse 6, if anyone does not abide me, he is cast forth as a branch. And look at verse 2, every branch in me. So this is talking about a believer. And besides, he says in verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 3, you are already uh, clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. He's directly applied this to the disciples. So the disciples are branches. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Verse 5. 
So he is clearly applying this to the disciples, and they obviously are believers. Wow. Then what does the rest of the verse mean? If you're an unfruitful believer, what happens? Well, he tells you. He says in verse 6, you're cast out. Now, does that mean you lose your salvation? No, that's not possible. What's the verse? I told you, you forgot it already. 524, you shall not come into judgment pertaining to eternal life. That's not possible. All right? Then what does it mean you're cast out? Well, I take it means you lose your fellowship. Remember in Revelation chapter 20, I stand at the door and knock. I'm outside the church. And if any man hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and save him? No, I'll come in and we'll have dinner together. Fellowship. So to be cast out is you're standing outside, not the Lord, and you've lost your fellowship. Then you wither. What's that? Well, I take it you lose your fervency. You get separated from the Lord, and what happens? You, dr- you shrivel up and die spiritually. Not that you're not saved anymore, but your spiritual life is withered. You're wrinkled. There's no vitality, no enthusiasm, no excitement in your spiritual life. And then he says, you're thrown into the fire. Oh, boy. Yikes, 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 yikes. What's the fire? Well... That's a problem. For the simple reason, the fire is used in the Bible in more than one way. Is fire in the Bible hell? Yes. But it's not only hell. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, remember that passage where we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and our works are going to be tried by fire? And some of our works are going to be like wood, hay, and stubble. And some of our works are going to be like gold, silver, and precious stones. And those works that survive the fire are going to be rewarded. And those that have all their works, they're unfruitful, go up in smoke. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, yet they are saved so as by fire. So fire in that case is at the judgment seat of Christ. And many take it that that's what's referred to here. Another possibility. Uh, I'll get to in a minute, but first I want to talk about the one I just mentioned. There are another possibility. But uh, this verse says that they are burned. Whereas in 1 Corinthians, it's the works that are burned. So I tend to think that's probably not the explanation, and I go to the next explanation, which is trials. 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about the fiery trials that shall come upon us. You get away from the Lord, and you are going to experience trials in the form of divine discipline. Now, I'm going to talk about that later. As a matter of fact, that's the next message in this series. But for today, I simply want to say that God wants to encourage you. And part of the encouragement is to realize what happens if you don't grow. 
You're going to lose your fellowship with the Lord. You're going to lose your fervency with the Lord. And consequently, you're not going to be rewarded by the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. I think all that's involved. But in this passage, I think he is probably talking about trials. So it's down to this. It's either fruit or fire. You're either going to grow and be able to handle the trials better, or you're not going to grow and you're going to face the trial and you are going to get burned in the trial. So the motivation is that you grow. I want you to feel the heat. I want you to feel the burn. So we up the temperature today in Southern California. Get the picture? All right. I've got a little more to say, but I want to sum it up at this point. And what I've said so far is really very, very simple. God encourages, and I think I would add disciplines, unfruitful believers by cleansing them through the word so that they will abide in him and produce fruit and as other passages tell us and be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. In one word, God wants to encourage all believers to produce fruit, to grow to Christ-like spiritual maturity. That's the bottom line. He blesses us so that we will grow. The slogan of this church, you noticed on the bulletin, a place to grow. Why is this a place to grow? Real simple. We teach the word and we get together so we can fellowship with one another and encourage one another. That's what we're trying to do here. Got it? Got it. I want to close by talking to two different groups of people. I want to talk to those who are unfruitful. This passage has something to say to you. What I would say to you is if you're not fruitful or not as fruitful as you should be, then you need to know that the Lord wants to encourage you to be fruitful. And he does that through his word, and he does that through people. That if you're being unfruitful, you need to be in the word, and you need to be around believers so you can hear that word of encouragement. That's what I would say to unfruitful believers. Matter of fact, I read about a fella who, when he was in high school, was a boxer. Now, that wasn't his profession later in life, but he said when he was in high school and was a boxer, the coach's greatest goal was to teach the boxers they should absolutely, positively, without question, never give up. He said, and I quote, if you're in the ring, just once in your life, completely on your own, and you get knocked down, but you get back up again, it's a never-to-be-forgotten experience. Your sense of achievement is distinct and unique. And sometimes the only thing you get, uh, the only thing that makes you get up is someone in your corner yelling. And I read that and I thought, the Lord's in my corner and he's yelling at me. (laughs) Go on, you can do this, keep going. I know that because I read the book. It says, keep keep growing, I'll bless you, just keep doing what I tell you to do, trust me. 
And if you don't hear that because you aren't in the Word, come to church and go to lunch, and hopefully we're encouraging one another, right? Do you get encouraged by coming to this church? Do you? Do people in this church encourage you? That would be my dream as a pastor, that we so love each other that you come and we just love on you and encourage you to grow in the Lord. That would just be fantastic. So that's what I'd say to an unfruitful believer. Just get in the Word or get with a group of Christians and hear the yell. We're in your corner. We're in your corner. We want you to grow. We don't care how many times you've fallen down. We want you to grow. We may yell at you, but we want you to grow. Get the message? All right. I have something to say to the believers who are producing fruit. And that is this. Fruitful believers need to abide in the Lord and His Word so they can minister to others. That if the Lord uses people to encourage unfruitful believers, then that's all of us. Now, how does he do that? Well, it seems to me from studying the Scripture that the Lord uses people as examples. Now, not every Christian is an example of every Christian virtue. That's only Jesus is that. We're not Jesus. However, some believers are great examples of, say, compassion. Other believers are great examples of perseverance. You might know a believer that's an example of knowledge. Another one that's an example of self-control. So the idea is that by being in a community of believers, you get a whole bunch of examples. And that's what we all need to be to one another. Other believers supply not only examples, but education and encouragement. So the Lord wants to encourage all of us to encourage other people. Now, how do we do that? And this is what I want us to really focus on. One of the ways we do that is we begin by seeing people's potential, not their problem. Let me tell you, people have problems. If you haven't figured that out yet, go home and look in the mirror. We've all got problems, right? So it's real easy, especially when the problems get to be glaring and bad, that you look at the person and see the problem. An encourager looks at the person, sees the problems, they're realists, and they see the potential. That's what we got to do. I read the story of a man who, as a young man, got interested in photography. At 16, he bought a camera and immediately took 50 pictures. 49 of them were terrible. And his father told him so. One was of his sister. And his mother landed on that one and talked about how great it was. And in his case, 
He listened to the mother, not the father. Many kids listen to the negative and not the positive. But in his case, he listened to his mother, and the article went on to say, I didn't recognize the name, that he ended up being one of the great, great photographers because he produced 49 flops and one good picture. Now, that's a clue as to how to exhort people and encourage them. When they do something right, they take that first step. Get excited! They took a step. Fall back down on his face. But get up and take another one. That's what we need to do for each other. Let me make another suggestion. The other thing you can do is simply say a word of encouragement. You see the potential and you say something about it. You use your mouth. Did I make that clear? Open it and say something that's of value, that's encouraging. There's nothing quite like an encouraging word. Because of an indiscretion, a professional man lost his job. In order to put bread on the table for his family, he ended up being a construction worker, a job for which he was not cut out. The story I read, and I quote, said, he was suddenly plunged into a dramatically different world. Instead of going to the office each day, he was hauling loads of concrete block up to the fifth level of a construction site. Gone was the piped-in music in the corridors. Profanity shouted through the air, especially from the foreman, whose primary tactic was intimidation. For blank's sake, you blank, can't you do anything right? I never worked with such a bunch of blanks in all of my life, was the way he talked. Near the end of the third week, he felt that he could take it no more. He decided he'd work until break time that morning, and he told himself, then that's it, I'm going home. It already been the butt of more than one joke when he got back uh, because of his lack of experience, and they caused him sometimes to do things that were his own fault. The story went on to say that he said, I just can't handle it anymore. A little while later, he decided to finish the morning, and he would leave at lunch. Shortly before noon, the foreman came around with a paycheck. He handed the man his envelope, and made his first civil comment to him in three weeks. Hey, there's a woman working in the front office who knows you, says she takes care of your kids sometimes. The man was surprised. Who, he said. He named the woman who sometimes helped in the nursery of the church. The foreman then went on with his rounds. When the man opened his paycheck envelope, he found along with it, along with the check, a handwritten note from the payroll clerk. When one part of the body of Christ suffers, we all suffer with it. Just wanted you to know that I'm praying for you these days. 
He stared at the note, astonished at God's timing. He hadn't even known the woman worked for the company. Here at his lowest point, she had given him the courage to go on to push another wheelbarrow of mortar, mortar up that ramp. So send a note. Speak a word. Send a text. Just go encourage everybody you can because you see the spiritual potential in them. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the people that have ministered to us. Lord, I thank you for all those men and women who have ministered to me so that I can be where I'm at today spiritually. Now, Lord, help us to be that for somebody else. In Jesus' name, amen.